have a material witness on an aggravated battery uh, with a hang of the state of Arizona in April of 1965. After this court's decision in Escobedo, affirmed. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in Batson uh, against Kentucky. Welcome to Bears, The Bar and Beyond, uh, the Baylor Pre-Law Podcast. This week, we're meeting with Professor Carla Reyes, an Associate Professor of Law at Michigan State University, Director of Legal R&D, the Center for Legal Services Innovation, uh, a Faculty Associate at the Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, and uh, also a Fulbright Scholar, uh, graduating with her JD, LLM and Masters in Public Policy from Duke University. Professor Reyes, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think uh, it, from from the perspective of the lawyer and technology, there's been a historical kind of reluctance to buy into technology. Um, you know, in the way that we've used computers, a lot of law firms still print out emails and put them on files. And uh, what has been your experience, um, both as a practitioner and now in the academic realm, seeing the legal industry adapt and accept technology? My experience has been that it's been a result of two things. One, there's always been a subset of attorneys who are interested and more willing and open to uh, innovation and change, both in the way that they practice law and in the way that they counsel clients who are using technology in their products. Um, The second parallel piece is that clients are more and more demanding more efficiencies. And the easiest way to give those efficiencies is by adopting new technologies that that help with that. So being being technologically um, competent as an attorney seems to be an increasingly important requirement. Yeah, and I'd say for two reasons, sort of parallel reasons. One is that clients increasingly have technological-based products, and you can't counsel a client well on a product that you don't understand. So, to, And the details matter. So knowing the product at a technical level is important because it impacts the way the regulations affect the product and the service that they're offering. And on the flip side, it's since 2008, clients want to make sure that they're paying for actual services and not glut. And so yeah. they want you to be more efficient in the work that you do. Yeah, that's that's definitely been a change. Clients are very much more in the driver's seat than perhaps they were pre, pre-crash. pre Yes. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about your time in private practice. Um, so you were, you were at Perkins Coy mm-hmm. uh, in their transactional department. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of work you did there? Sure. So um, it's Perkins Coie in Seattle and actually started in the litigation side uh, in the privacy and security group. Um, I worked on cases involving uh, e-commerce and um, really transactions happening on the Internet and slowly developed, um, perhaps randomly, a <laughs> uh, expertise in money transmission laws. And so I did more and more money transmission counseling for the transactional side. So money laundering, bribery mm-hmm. cases, that kind of thing? Yes, at the federal level and at the state level, each state has a licensure regime. So Western Union has to have a license and be bonded and insured in order to take your money and send it to grandma, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so <laughs> hopefully, grandma sends us money at Christmas. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right? It could it could go both ways. Right? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I had developed sort of a random expertise in that, and then in 2013, um, the Treasury decided that federal money transmission laws applied to virtual currency, and I happened to be the one that knew about 
money transmitter laws. So now I worked uh, a lot in the virtual currency um, world, and that pushed me over the edge to the transactional practice. And there was a lot of counseling around regulatory challenges and how to navigate them. Um, it was a lot of uh, contract drafting, um, payment processing agreements in particular were my speciality. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and a lot of that depended on understanding the client's needs and the client's products and services from a technical perspective. So when we talk to uh, pre-law students, we we talk about understanding or at least having a sense of the kind of law firm that they'd like to be in, just mm. because sometimes you can't always pick the area, you, you end up falling in, mm-hmm. into it. Um, so you were at a large law firm, they've got offices all over the US and in China. Do you think you would have had um, anything like that same opportunity to do that kind of cutting edge work in a smaller boutique firm? Or is it something do you think was fairly unique to the larger firm end of, of the employment market? I think some of the privacy security work might be unique to the larger end of the market, um, but the in particular because it was class action lawsuit work. But the um, cryptocurrency stuff, it, everyone's doing it. Um, there's a huge demand for legal expertise in that space, and the issue is whether you have the expertise and not necessarily which firm you work at. Yeah. Although there are, of course, big law firms sort of leading the way. Um, so a little bit of both, I guess. So we we can see that you know this can be these these kinds of technologies, blockchain, artificial intelligence, can be obviously applied to the business operations of large corporations. But I think it's important to note that becoming more efficient and innovating the way that we provide legal services can also have really positive and significant implications in terms of things like access to justice. Absolutely. Can you maybe shed some light on on how uh, the Center for Legal Innovation is is helping that and and ways that students who are listening can look to do that kind of thing down the road? Sure. So we do that in several ways. We have course offerings specifically designed to give you the opportunity to, A, learn how to design um, technology or processes that would make legal services more efficient and then apply that to a real world problem. So we have a course that in the past has paired up with legal service providers, whether that be big law firms or um, uh, public interest uh, outfits, um, to help them say, they say, hey, we have this problem. Can you help us be more efficient in serving folks with it? Or can you help build an app or a website process that will help folks with self-help um, processes? Um, so that's one that we offer courses in figuring out how to do that. That's one way. We have co-curricular activities where we do that for um, the courts or for um, public interest groups. Um, and there's just opportunities for students to be entrepreneurial here um, and then to be entrepreneurial as lawyers afterwards uh, in that space. Yeah, because I think, I think people often underestimate just how, how much work is involved in starting mm-hmm. your own firm. And so it sounds like there's an emphasis on equipping yourself with the skills to be able to do that as cheaply and as efficiently as possible. Yes. So there's both a, a course in figuring out how to design legal processes for others to make them more efficient, but there's also a course in how basically how to start your own law firm called entrepreneurial lawyering. Um, there's also an effort underway to incorporate law practice management 
technology into every class. So Mm -hmm. in my classes, I teach business enterprises, um, artificial intelligence in the law and technology transactions. And in all of those classes, including business enterprises, I ask students to bill their time. And so they learn how to use billing software from the beginning. Um, Which is not something you traditionally learn until you are in a law firm. That's right. And it took me like two years to figure out how to do it well, right? So hopefully this starts the habit um, earlier. That. Well, it's funny. So uh, Ian, who's the director of admissions for our listeners here, we were talking about what it was like even just 10 years ago, you know, recording or dictating letters mm-hmm. on an audio tape and then, you know, that being transported by hand mm-hmm. to the secretary pool and just how quickly the technology that's available has changed. But traditionally, we haven't taught any of that in law school. Do, do you think that's going to have to change in the years ahead? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, particularly as clients demand that first year, second year um, lawyers know more than they traditionally have known and be more efficient at their work. So again, in technology transactions, I also, we do drafting work and we use the same methods that you would use in um, in law practice to negotiate back and forth via the document rather than in person or hold up in-person closing, right? So we work with those technologies as well. I know the the application of technology in law is so broad now certainly it used to be you know um optical character recognition in in disclosure and discovery was this huge revolution but now we constantly hear about things like blockchain and artificial intelligence um i've heard about blockchain i have kind of a vague understanding of really what it is but for myself and for our listeners who have heard it but don't have a huge familiarity with it would you mind giving us an explanation of exactly what blockchain is and and why it's important and why it's having real implications for the way we do transactions and, and commerce in the way in the, the years ahead? Sure. Yeah. So first, a note on terminology. We like to use the word blockchain or blockchain technology, but really blockchain technology is a subset of the technology. The broader term is distributed ledger technology. And a blockchain specifically is one type of distributed ledger that has a certain data structure. What a blockchain or distributed ledger more broadly does is it's essentially software, computer software that's distributed across a network of computers that sets the rules for how those computers can talk to each other to agree on the state of facts between them. It builds a ledger between the computers and allows them to agree that the ledger is true without having a third-party intermediary say that from the top. So it's effectively creating the bank account ledger for you without the bank. Um, it does that by if using... Um, super complicated algorithms in the background and having specific subsets of the computers solve those math problems. And that part isn't technically important. I mean, not important really to understand how the thing works generally. The the broader point is that it is a decentralized um, mechanism for people through computers to come to agreement about a set of facts that they share between them when they don't trust each other. Hmm. Um, So the... Bank example is a good one because what a blockchain or specifically the Bitcoin blockchain, which is why everyone calls it a blockchain because of the one, the the Bitcoin blockchain does, is if I want to send a Bitcoin to my husband, I broadcast broadcast that transaction request to all of the network, the computers in the network. And some of them work very hard to verify that tra- transaction. And when we say it's verifying the transaction, we say they're doing three things, really. 
verifying that I am who I say I am because I used the right code or the right key to start the transaction. They are determining that I do have those funds to send to my husband. And thirdly, that I haven't simultaneously sent it to my sister, right? So it's doing the exact same thing that a bank would do for you. You are who you say you are because you use the pin for your debit card. You have the funds and you haven't double spent the funds. And once they verify that, then they put that, your transaction alone with a group of transactions into a block. And then that block is cryptographically linked to other blocks that have gone before you, creating a chain, a chain of blocks, literally. Mm -hmm. And then after several other blocks have been added, your transaction is considered verified because at that point, it's really hard to tamper with your transaction. So it avoids things like buying something with a credit card and then canceling the credit card because it's already verified that it was you who was making the transaction, that you have the funds to complete the transaction Without the credit card company doing that for you. That has to have massive implications for the finance and banking industry. It does. um, And and they're aware of that. So they are creating their own version. um, And in particular, a consortium of banks have created a version called Corda. um, And the idea is that they can keep it to themselves. It's not open and public the way the Bitcoin blockchain is. Not everyone can use it. Um, so, yeah, they're aware of the challenge and they're trying to co-opt it <laughs> yeah. um, so that they, they can put it to use without being overrun. And, and I imagine that will go a very long way to removing the, the problem of money laundering. It's interesting because money laundering regulators think that it makes it worse. Really? Okay. Yeah, because um, transactions on the network are pseudonymous. So it's very difficult to tell, assuming that you interact with the network directly, if you're technologically savvy enough to do that, um, it's very hard to tell who you are. If you go through someone, uh, an intermediary of some sort, to help you with that transaction, that's easier. But um, for the folks who know how, um, it's very easy to, or it's thought to be easier to hide or obfuscate who you are and make it easier, perhaps, for, uh, to conduct money laundering. The truth of the matter is there are techniques to fight back. So even when you think you're technologically savvy, you can use Chainalytics to figure out who you are and you know where the money came from. Um, so people are, have been caught and prosecuted under money laundering uh, transmission laws. Um, yeah, so it's that's a complicated one because um, the regulators, and particularly Treasury, have come out sort of saying this makes it easier and we need to sort of wall it off so that we can handle it uh, better. So it's got, I mean, it's got real implications then across a number of different practice areas, mm-hmm. things like corporate con- compliance and regulation, litigation, obviously, mm-hmm. and like you were saying, advising clients on, on different uh, secured transactions. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, commercial transactions, secured lending, uh, real property, um, UCC Article 9, so secured lending implications, uh, folks are using it in supply chain management, mm. um, identity concerns, so verifying that you are who you say you are. Um, the United Nations is looking at uh, self-sovereign identity applications for refugees, um, all sorts of, yeah, all sorts of applications. Which I guess just highlights the importance of, of students acquiring some, some working knowledge on, on these kind of things. Do you have some suggestions on where, so our audience is, undergraduate students, but also alum who are out getting some work experience before applying to law school and also law students. Do you have some suggestions on resources and and things that they could be doing to get a a basic working knowledge of this new technology? So there's several places you can do online free courses, basically, to learn about the technology. Coursera offers um, a a program, and so does... um, 
Open Law, uh, which is an initiative um, out of New York. Uh, and I think Consensus also has sort of their Consensus Academy, um, which offers free sort of introductory course uh, material. Um, additionally, I believe the UCLA blockchain uh, effort, which is a student-led effort, has a freely available material uh, to learn about blockchain as well. We look at certainly things like uh, LegalZoom and and the the effect that they've had on you know smaller firms who used to do wills and estates and those kind of things as as a lot of bread and butter. Uh, do you see this new technology making it harder for smaller firms to compete? Hmm. No, I think it makes it easier for them mm-hmm. to compete because I think the bigger firms have to change their model. Um, so they may have the it may be easier to get up to speed on the technology, but it might be harder for the bigger firms to convince more broadly their partnership that this is a direction worth pursuing, whereas smaller firms have more flexibility uh, in making those decisions. Um, I also think that in particular, when we're talking about the blockchain community, it's a super open community and there are very low barriers to entry. If you're interested and you want to be involved and be a part of it, find your local meetup and, and go talk to the developers and, and just get involved. That's how everyone has become yeah. involved. It just started in 2009, right? So everyone is technically pretty new. <laughs> pretty new, um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so no, I think if you're entrepreneurial enough, I don't think there are, it doesn't make the barriers to entry any more stringent than they were before. Can you help us understand um, the distinction, I guess, between a term like blockchain, um, or uh, sorry, what was the uh, the terminology, the correct terminology? That you distributed used ledger distributed technology. Distributed ledger. Yeah. What's that's the distinction between that and the term that we, I guess, use fairly generically of artificial intelligence? Mm, artificial intelligence is a field of information science um, that encompasses several subsets of um, study. So the most prevalent uh, really uh, at, at the moment is machine learning. Um, and so people often use machine learning and artificial intelligence interchangeably, but really it's just one of the many subsets of what artificial intelligence is. Artificial intelligence more most broadly is um, the study of how to make machines um, act or think you can say that they think, but how to have them replicate the thinking functions uh, and activities of humans or animals, right? So how do we um, have machines replicate those higher level um, thinking functions? And there are a variety of techniques for that that have been investigated since the 1950s, um, including machine learning, neural networks, natural language processing. Um, All of that is... um, slightly different from distributed ledger technology, um, which distributed ledger technology doesn't necessarily require machine learning of any kind to make it work. Um, It is an algorithm that powers it, um, powers the software, um, but it doesn't necessarily learn as it go. It's just pre-programmed to to do what it does um, upon sort of the fulfillment of certain predefined conditions. Artificial intelligence is also pushing the boundaries of law and the way we practice law. Mm. Um, Increasingly, uh, traditional legal services providers, including like Westlaw and LexisNexis, are offering artificially intelligent research assistants to help you research. Um, Which years ago was clerks and paralegals and and young associates. Right. Uh, um, And there are things um, in the market to help you uh, pre- 
sort of cull or uh, narrow down your discovery, right? So uh, it finds the search terms for you. So all of the doc review with the coding and the careful looking can be done through machine learning, through algorithms, um, or at least a first cut can. And so um, there's a lot of uh, discussion, particularly after the Lola v. Scadden case in North Carolina, about what that means for the practice of law. Could you give us a little bit of background to that case? Sure. So um, in Lola v. Scadden, a contract attorney, uh, last name named Lola, um, was a doc review attorney for Scadden. Um, he uh, was a California barred lawyer, but working in North Carolina um, for, for like physically for Scadden uh, on a case that was in Ohio. Um, but the document review he was doing was in uh, North Carolina. Mm. Um, and he was working between 40 and 55 hours a week. Uh, and when he worked above 40 hours was not being paid overtime. He was paid $25 an hour for his work, uh, regardless of the number of hours per week. So he sued, uh, arguing that he should have been paid overtime. Hmm. Under the Fair Labor Standards Act, attorneys who or really people who practice law, people engaged in the, quote, practice of law, are exempt from being paid overtime, uh, from the overtime pay requirements. Um, and the question was, was what he was doing the practice of law? Um, he lost at the um, district court level who said, clearly, document review is the practice of law. It's always been the practice of law. Um, and there's no indication under North Carolina statute defining the practice of law that would indicate otherwise. At the um, appellate court level, uh, the appellate court was very interested in uh, at oral argument as a question that had not been briefed by either party. But at oral argument was very uh interested in this idea that the doc reviewers had been using relativity to pre-find the search terms for them. And all the doc review folks were doing, according to Lola, was uh, looking for um, the highlighting, essentially, from relativity and clicking a button when they found it. Uh, and um, the court sort of went on this line of questioning about, well, if a computer can do it, is it actually the practice of law? Mm. And the parties at oral argument kind of said, no, both parties that were argument said, you know, if a computer is fully doing it, like maybe not. And as a result, the case was sent back to the lower court for further determination of whether this document review in particular required some kind of human judgment that was really the practice of law. Because the idea was if a computer can do it, maybe it's not actually the practice of law. Um, that issue was never uh, fully vetted at the lower court level because the case settled at that point. Hmm. Um, but the implications are unless you can defend whatever the activity is by saying that it's something beyond what relativity in this case is doing then it might not be the practice of law wow i i, I wonder then what you think about the future of law do you think it's a a profession that will have that will continue but evolve or do you think that the continuing progress of the technology that we're seeing presents a, a real threat I think that it's a the practice of law will continue but evolve. Um, yeah. There's any number of ways that uh, even in doc review that you are exercising legal judgment depending on the way that the document review is set up and what the questions are. If you're engaged in privilege review, you really are asking like. What is this communication? Does it fall under the rules of privilege in my state or in the state of, in the jurisdiction where this case is being litigated? That absolutely requires legal judgment that goes beyond 
um, finding the term attorney-client privilege, which might be stamped on any number of documents, but not actually apply, right? Um, So absolutely, I think that the practice of law will continue, even in the context of doc review, right? But that given this type of ruling and questioning from um, the appellate court that we're going to have to evolve law, I think. um, And obviously, even without that, we've been needing to evolve law to make it more efficient uh, just from client pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, jurisdictions like Australia and the United Kingdom have introduced these things called alternative business structures where non-lawyers are able to to take a stake for our listeners in in the operation of a law firm. Mm -hmm. That hasn't happened here. Do you do you think that with increased pressure from clients for efficiency, the um, increasing use of technology, uh, and the global nature of increasingly global nature of law, that we will see that enter the U.S. space? Yes, yeah, so we actually just talked about this issue in my artificial intelligence in the law class this morning. Okay, and we examined sort of the arguments on both sides. On the one hand, there is this idea that the monopoly that lawyers have over the practice of law by virtue of the rules and the the rules of um, professional conduct, like you can't have an alternative business structure um, or the unauthorized practice of law rules. There's this feeling that maybe that um, prevents lawyers and law firms from being as innovative as they otherwise would be because of the lack of competition, right? On the other hand, um, the rules, uh, you know, if you read the commentary, nowhere in there does it say we're invoking this rule in order to um, make sure we continue to have a monopoly, right? The concern is really about protecting the interests of the clients, right? So to what extent would uh, outside sources of investment uh, hinder the lawyer's ability to uh, av- advocate zealously for the client? Um, would outside pressures other than what is in the client's best interest in the context of the case become a pressure that you have to to think about and pay attention to as a result of, um, a- of an ABS? And uh, those questions haven't really been answered uh, here and no one's really thinking about it. And the other sort of challenge to the, well, it's a monopoly problem, is that even with those sort of monopoly rules, if you want to call them that, um, n- no uh, one law firm has any real significant market share, right? Not even big law has such a significant market share that they could change and everyone would follow, right? Mm. There's just too much, a little activity in the market, uh, in the industry for um, for sort of a leader of the pack to just lead us one way, which is another reason that change is so slow to come. So I, I don't know if we'll ever take up the mantle of ABS, but I understand why beyond accusations that it's to protect our monopoly, why we might not, right? Yeah. The, the ethical questions of how might it affect the way that we um, advocate for our clients or not, right? Because yeah. we have some kind of outside pressure from a non-client source. Yeah, I mean, I think those same arguments were made very strongly in the UK and in Australia against those changes for the very reasons you talked about, because you've got people owning law firms mm-hmm. who aren't bound by the same the same rules. If I could turn for a minute to your time in private practice, Mm -hmm. just to get um, a little bit of a sense of what it was like, because we do have a number of our students who are interested in working in large law firms in in big metropolitan cities. What uh, what made you choose to initially join a a big firm? Um, So I was 
interested in the area of, so like I said, I went first into litigation. I was interested in privacy security litigation, and Perkins had a very well-known practice uh, in that space. Um, and it also happened to be at home. So I'm a Pacific Northwesterner um, from uh, the beginning, from birth, and um, and I wanted to go back to the West Coast. So I went to, went to Seattle's office of Perkins Coie, and it was just perfect uh, for me to do both that work that I wanted to do and and to go home. And did you find it hard going to a school in North Carolina and then moving back? Was it a fairly straightforward transition or what, did it just mean you had to do some extra work to move back to another state? Yeah, I had to do a little bit more work, not because it was um, a move to another state. Most of my uh, classmates went to other states, but mm-hmm. most of them went to New York, California, D.C., right, yeah. uh, and not not to Washington. So the challenge there was being the outlier in which state I went to. Uh, so there were no sort of mm, structured bar prep places for me to go. I, I did my bar prep on an iPod, for example, right? Um, listening to iPod lectures. And then, yeah, the the march home, the drive back was, was rougher than <laughs> yeah, for some yeah. other people. But no, other than that, um, and I did have to do a little extra legwork in terms of finding the position because the employers from Washington, Oregon didn't come to campus, right? Yeah. Um, so I think Perkins did that year, but I think it might have been like the last year for a while. Um, so I had to do a little bit of extra application work and travel out there on my own but um but it wasn't terrible what did you what did you particularly enjoy about working in that setting i loved um i love the people there's good people at Mm. that firm so i really love the people that i was working with that makes a big difference and i miss them Uh, yeah because you spend a lot of time with them yeah (laughs) yeah it's not a nine to five that's right yeah that's right so i really love the people that i was working with um and i really loved the caliber of the work and the diversity of it i was very rarely and i did my fair share of doc review (laughs) and (laughs) of due diligence right but it was very rarely that that was the only thing that i was doing uh and um there, because of um, really that firm's philosophy coupled with sort of client pressure, the cases that I was on and then later transactional work that I was on was really fairly leanly staffed. And so I always got good substantive work from the beginning, uh, you know, for my level um, and was challenged both intellectually uh, in my skills development um, and just with the diversity of the topics and, and the work. Yeah, it was just lovely. I'm sure you had when, I guess when, when I talk to students about the differences between large and small firms, uh, just the access to resources that you have often mm. in, in large law firms. Can you tell us a little bit about um, things like research and, and training opportunities that you had as by virtue of being in a firm that size? Yeah, I can. I can also compare it to not being in a firm that size. So I graduated in 2009 um, when things were a little bit tough. Yeah. So we were deferred the first year. And so I actually started at um, the Volunteer Advocates for Immigrant Justice on uh, sort of like a public interest fellowship sponsored by the firm. Um, and they had very little resources. They, you know, um, And so I did everything myself from you know, yeah. filing the cases to the copying, uh, everything. Um, and and because they actually had so little resources, we were actually housed in the firm. Uh, you know, Perkins gave us office space. But um, so then comparing that then, and all the training happened through my supervisor. Um, she was the trainer, the supervisor, also doing had her own caseload, right? Um, and like drinking from a from a fire hose. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We were just running around doing it all, and it was just um, one big sort of team learning it all together. When I moved to the firm, um, the stuff was so different. Uh, first of all. 
like the topic, right, immigration to uh, privacy uh, and security. But um, I often say that I learned how to be a lawyer um, because my secretary taught me the the ins and outs, the details of, of yeah. how to actually do it, right? Pe- they People underestimate just how much of a, a wonderful resource they can be when you first set foot in that context and you think you know everything, but you really don't. She was so fabulous. And yeah. I never, ever thought I knew everything. And so so I was very open to being taught, right? Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, I don't know feeling. And she was, she was just so fabulous. And so that was one of the resources that were just, uh, I, I just couldn't imagine have not having now, right? Although I didn't have it at the immigration um, side. But just, yeah, I mean, that's one that shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, just the other people, the other staff that you have available. Additionally, when it came time for my first sort of um, leanly staffed um, litigation, the paralegal that was staffed with me, we, we became very good friends through, you know, being in the trenches together. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, training and development. There were CLEs all the time. Um, there were writing workshops. There were um, just mentors. You just go ask. And everyone was like, good people. So everyone was just super uh, welcoming with open doors to come and just ask questions when you didn't know didn't know what to do, then they've had 20, 30 years of experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good rule of thumb. You should treat everybody in that law firm like you would the equity partners. Exactly. You know? Yes. Um, um, what were some of the things that you found frustrating about about working in that context? Billing my time. Um. Can you can, – so a lot of our students will have might have heard this, but can you explain for our listeners what, what that really means? So you have to keep track of your time in six-minute increments. Um, so you have to know exactly how much time you spent on everything that you've done throughout the day and whether what you've done is quote unquote billable or not, whether you can charge a client for your work. If your coffee break is not billable, right? You can't yeah. count that. Um, uh, admin work, like actually the time you spend billing your time, you can't count that. Um, so being as efficient as you can in doing those things, um, that, that was very hard for me because I had never, I mean, not until I got there had I thought about it. And, um, and they can vary in budget too from, say, having to charge six through to eight hours a day depending on, on your firm. Well, and, and that was difficult for me. So we had a yearly, hour, uh, hourly requirement and figuring out what that meant for myself on a day-to-day basis, like to make sure that I was on track. Yeah. That was something I had to think a lot about in the beginning um, because I could be there 10 hours and only have billed five. Um, depending on how efficient I was or what it was I was doing, right? My training meetings don't count. So I could legitimately be doing um, important work that nevertheless did not count towards my bill. Client relationship building. Exactly. Can't charge them for it. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, this has been tremendously helpful. Um, I hope our listeners have found it so as well. Um, I think just in summary, it sounds like this is something that you cannot avoid if you are either in law school or aspiring to go to law school and become an attorney. Um, but it also sounds like it's it's relatively straightforward to get access to the kind of resources that will help you have a fairly good working knowledge. Um, do you have any, any final advice for students who are about to go to law school in terms of how important the technological um, offerings at their law school should be in their decision-making? And also just uh, maybe some, if you have any specific book titles or something that, that you might recommend that they perhaps read after they've graduated and as they prepare for, for law school next fall. So on the, you know, choosing 
or thinking about the technological offerings at the school, I think it's very important. I think it's important. Um, there are many schools that are doing incredibly innovative work in, in this space um, and others not so much. Um, but I also think it's important to think about it and the two sort of parallel tracks that I've described. One, you want a school that both offers um, courses in the substantive area. So how does artificial intelligence interact with, with substantive law? How does blockchain interact with substantive law, right? So that you're thinking about it from that sort of product counseling, service counseling You're integrating that knowledge. Exactly. So substantive law, like any normal regulatory regime, but applied to technology because it, it raises new questions. But on the other side, you also want to look for a school that also values practice management technology and learning about, um, innovation in legal technology uh, and practice management because the two go hand in hand but aren't always thought of that way. Mm. Um, also keep an eye out just for experiential offerings in uh, in the law school, technological or not, right? Usually the um, law schools that are offering advanced technology courses, either on the substantive or, or practice management side, also offer an array of experiential uh, opportunities. And um, those are even moving towards using experiential things like Clio in uh, regular classes, traditional podium classes. It sounds like it could be an advantage to a fairly significant advantage when it comes to actually getting a job. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah, this is I think, I think this has been a, a real help. If you have more questions about um, the practice of law, if you want to find out about more specific areas of practice, or if you've got more specific questions about the content of today's podcast, please send those directly to prelaw at baylor.edu. Professor Rice, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.